0: Good morning, everyone. This morning, we're back in 1 Corinthians. Today, we're covering chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. And I'm going to start the timer. And uh, make sure the recorders are recording, the timer's going, and it'll go well. All right. Good on both ends here. Today... I'm going to tell you up front that I'll be citing more scholars than I typically do. and The reason for that is that I'm covering a passage that has been misunderstood, misused, turned on its head throughout the entirety of church history until recently when it became pretty clear what was being said here and what was cited was actually their slogan, not... Paul's teaching, I'll explain that. So bear with me as I cite scholars. I spent three weeks reading uh, the best material that I have to prepare for this because we want to understand what God said and not be deceived by history that went astray. So I'll start by reading verse 1. We'll pray, and then we'll unpack the text. 1 Corinthians 7.1. Now, concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Unquote. Now, let's pray. Dear Lord, help us understand what you've said. May our minds be conformed to your word. May we believe the truth. May we not be deceived by the traditions of men. And may we honor you, In all things, whatever it is that our gift is, may we honor you as we serve you by faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Now, here's the crux, and then I'll show you why uh, this has been misunderstood, and then creating a whole system of religion that has nothing to do with what Paul said. Now, There's a letter that we don't have that they wrote to Paul. He is responding to it. This happens a lot in 1 Corinthians. Notice it says, now concerning. Now concerning in the Greek, peri day, is a little phrase that says change of topic. Now the next topic. Peri day is used quite often in 1 Corinthians. Actually six times. And it's Denoting a change in topic. The last topic had to do with the immorality that happened in the pagan society in Corinth. Here, now, he's talking about marriage. Now, here's the crux of the issue. This statement, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, has been understood in church history to be Paul's teaching. And by understanding this to be Paul's teaching, there's no quotation marks in the Greek, by the way. It's up to the context to let us understand who's being cited. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. Church history was understood to be Paul's statement, and then that yielded the idea that married Christians were less spiritual and lesser than people who took uh, oaths of celibacy or remained single. That prevailed through almost, I mean, centuries and centuries of church history. But that actually turns what's going on here on its head and creates just the opposite. What in fact is the case is that this was their position. And I'll read some many quotes from people in church history and from contemporary scholars showing the result of that. So this, in fact, is their slogan. So that's why I have that stated on the slide. This is what they're saying. Paul's responding to it. Now concerning, here's what you're saying. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. So touch, in this particular case, is a euphemism For sexual relations. And as I said, church history is filled with errors based on misunderstanding Paul's teaching here. So I I made this statement. I'll make sure I don't miss anything. Uh, This uh, is my statement. There are no quotation marks in the Greek manuscripts, so we need to decide from the context whether this is a citation and who is being cited. As I said, this is not Paul's statement, but theirs. Dr. Gordon Fee says this: the sentence that immediately follows, without prior warning or introduction, is one of the more difficult in the letter, and certainly one of the most misused in the history of the church. He, I believe, rightly says this statement in its misunderstanding one of the most misused in the history of the church. I'm going to cite Dr. Garland on this same thing. Plenty of these um, scholarly citations today, so be prepared. Garland says this, Some Corinthians may think that by renouncing worldly pleasures, they will be able to rise to new spiritual heights. Paul demurs. He sees them entering territories, says Garland, filled with snares and traps that will only lead to their moral downfall. Obviously, his comments can be misconstrued and used to reinforce a condescending and even disparaging evaluation of marriage. Now, here he cites some people from church history and how it was used citing Garland pointing out people's misuse of it. Continuing, John Chrysostom claims, quote, virginity stands as a far, far above marriage as heavens stand above the earth. That was Christentom, church history. So virginity, far above marriage, according to him. Jerome, another church father, asserts, quote, all those who have not remain virgins following the pattern of the pure chastity of angels, that of our Lord Jesus Christ himself are polluted. So says Jerome. So if you're a Christian couple, you're married, you're polluted compared to the holy others. Augustine um, says this. Augustine maintained, he's actually Evaluating Augustine's view, Augustine maintains that marriage is not good, but is a good, but is good a good in comparison with fornication. Continence, he says, is an angelic exercise. So, marriage is lesser or an outright evil, as far as many people in church history are concerned, and. Based on that, one doctrine after another, after another came forth that twists the Scripture, deny the Scripture, make innovations and claims not made in the Bible because there is this negative evaluation of marriage. Let's go to verse 2. Again, this passage also has been misconstrued by not realizing that that statement was that of the Corinthians who were in error. 1 Corinthians 7.2. L-E-B, by the way, is Lexham English Bible. But because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Now, this was misconstrued to say Okay, as a concession, so that you won't be immoral, you can go get married, even though it's a lesser thing. But that's not what Paul is saying, okay? The word, by the way, translated sexual immorality, is pornea, and that was warned against in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20, and elsewhere. Here it is plural, which is unusual, because of the immoralities. This is my statement. Since pagan Corinth was filled with pornea, such cases, quote, give special point to Paul's injunction here, says Dr. Thistleton. Special point. So we already saw that in chapter six. The paganness of pagan Corinth is uh, legendary. There they had the temple Aphrodite. They had uh, temple prostitution, immoralities that were considered spiritual exercises of worship to the pagan deities, and so on and so forth. The view of marriage was very distorted. So, the point here is Paul is defending what's taught in Genesis 2 that A husband and wife have sexual relations with one another and that's the sanctity of marriage it's not lesser it's not bad it's not something you get stuck with because you don't have the special gifting that uh, others might have of being single and chaste in that way that's not the point there are two imperatives in the Greek Have, and this is applied to the husband and wife in their intimate relationship with one another. This Christian teaching is antithetical to the beliefs and practices of pagan Corinth, and I'll cite some of that. Um, Let me here cite Dr. Fee again. When the clauses are taken at Face value, he says, however, giving all the words their normal usage, then Paul is saying no to their slogan as far as married partners are concerned. Thus he means, quote, let each man who is already married continue in relations with his own wife and each wife likewise, unquote. That means full conjugal life, which is what Paul will now go on to argue in detail. Now before we go to that, I want to go to Genesis. Genesis 2, 18 and 24 to 25. This is the ground, the Judeo-Christian view of marriage. And I want to point out before I read these citations that they are found in Genesis 2 before the fall before sin. This is God's intent. Genesis two eighteen. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Genesis 2, 24 through 25. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife And they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This shows the original intent. The sexual relations were for marriage, were good and not shameful between the man and the woman. Now this is the foundation, the Christian view of marriage. Those who would say it's not good or it's at least lesser, as has happened throughout church history and in various pagan religions, this is wrong. We need to go to the scripture alone. Dr. Gardner refers to these Genesis passages and applies them them to the slogan of 1 Corinthians in uh, 1b, quoting Gardner. Sadly, at times in history, the statement has been used to justify an asceticism that has more in common with Greek dualistic spirituality than with a biblical view of the whole person, body and soul living in every area of life to God's glory. Unquote. Dr. Gardner. Now, I want to make my own statement about this. The fall changed this and brought about shame and fear due to alienation from God and one another. So you have 2, 24, 25. Then there's the tempter. You, You should be like God. You'll not surely die. This will be good. Rebel against God. And then in Genesis 3, suddenly comes alienation from God, alienation from one another, shame and hiding and problems. I have asserted and will continue to assert that many of the problems and false philosophies, be they political, religious, or otherwise, that we see even in our culture today are caused by failing to understand the profundity of the fall. Sin changed everything and it creates all of these problems. And... The idea that, well, if we just get rid of all rules and laws, then the goodness of everybody will just come out. No, Eric was talking about this in What comes out is more sin, more wickedness, more uh, false religion. Human beings are not pristine. They're fallen. Marriage is still valid between a man and a woman, and God is protecting the dignity and the value of both. In fact, I'll I'll point that out when we get to it. When I did all the study on this material, I, I felt that the stuff that was going on when I was in seminary where they were wanting to apologize for evangelical Christianity is foolish. The Bible itself preserves the dignity of everyone, including the woman, in the relationship. We don't have to have uh, get rid of the pronouns and have 80 genders or whatever they have. We need to get to the scripture. It says in Ephesians 5, 28, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. We're commanded to love. That's what it's supposed to look like. Paul cites... Genesis 2.24 that we have up here. Ephesians 5.31 Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast the word there to be glued to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. The Bible affirms the dignity, the value, and the holiness of Christian marriage in the Lord. And this is also in society whether people are Christian or not, how life is supposed to look like. Marriage is ordained by God. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 4, and I'll cite some more from a scholar and make some applications. And we need to look at what happens in religion, world religions, when these things are not understood properly, including in church history. 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 4. The husband must fulfill his obligation to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but her husband does. Likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but his wife does. Here, Paul is saying that this is an equal and important relationship. The, the needs and importance of each Person in the marriage are taken to be important and necessary. And far from the false claim that I heard from some when I was at seminary that evangelicalism is abusive to women and it's too patriarchal and therefore we need to get rid of uh, uh, like the pronoun he for God because people can't come to God because they think there's something wrong with men and fathers. So let's uh, neuter the Bible and we'll we'll make up for this wrong injustice. Well, little did I know that was just the beginning. Now uh, it's gone even beyond that. But here we see, if we get this correct, God is giving the protection of marriage and full relationship sexually within marriage, to men and women. No one is given license to abuse someone else, whatever their gender. Dr. Gardner says this, the word likewise, homiose homios, makes the point linguistically, in this area of sexual intimacy, husband and wife have equal rights, which is a concept that would probably not have been typical in the world of Paul's day, but which reflects the one flesh, it goes back to Genesis, union of biblical teaching on the matter. It's further highlighted, says Gardner, in verse 4. Listen to what the Romans thought about this. He's going to mention this. Dr. Gardner, while in Roman society, the first part of this verse might have been expected. The second part, in which the man is said not to rule over his own body, stands out as remarkable for a largely largely patriarchal society. Indeed, in many sectors of our own Western society, Gardner says, in which men exercise power over women, often to their great detriment and pain, we might say that, Verses four C through D still stands as remarkable. So the Bible is giving us what we need. We don't need to jettison the Bible and run to pagan society and find all the things out there that are available because of misunderstanding how God is protecting everyone, be they married or single. Whatever has happened in the past and we'll cover some of this as we continue to go forward God is giving us hope and promise whoever we are wherever we've been, whatever happened if we're in Christ we need to know we're saved what the Romans thought as normal is uh, horrible as far as looking back at how they viewed things and some of the intertestamental Jewish sources also were off base on this. Let's go to verse 5. 1 Corinthians 7 5. Notice the imperative. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time so that you may res- devote yourself to prayer and come together again so that te- Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control now let's put this in context we'll understand this is a concession but the concession is abstinence within marriage for a short time for a reason whereas the misunderstanding that prevailed throughout centuries of church history is that marriage was the concession in other words Everyone would be more spiritual if they just took an oath of celibacy and never got married. And that, so the, they made marriage a concession, which is uh, not the case. The concession would be a marriage where for a short time there is a, a devotion to prayer as needs be to get back together again. The pagan culture, this is my statement of Paul's day and ours, creates pressure against godly marriage. The pressure, the attacks, the temptations, the lies are so prevalent that being married and staying married is a battle, it's a miracle when when it happens in God's way. Because there's so much attack against it. They were, the word pornea, immorality, lurks to destroy. So we have a negated imperative here. Um, And the usage of the Greek, I think this is correctly translated, something that was already going on. Imagine this. Chapter 6, Paul is warning about pornea, about people going to temple prostitutes, Christians doing what Christians are not allowed to do, And thinking it's no big deal, denying the the relationship with the the wife or the husband as it should be, and going out elsewhere. That was a problem in chapter six. Okay, now there are some who are saying, okay, the temple prostitutes are okay, but the wife is only for procreation, and that was a pagan ideal. Let me cite some sources. Kiempa and Rosner say this. And they're looking at Exodus 21, 10 through 11. Paul's convictions may be traced to Exodus 21, 10 through 11, which concerns the rights of the slave wife. The law of Moses taught that the husband shall not diminish her. That is, his wife's food, clothing or her marital rights, a euphemism for sexual relations. Intone Bruner, this is another scholar, he cites, this passage said that even a slave wife had the right to expect love from her husband, and so the rabbis had Paul deduced that a free wife and a husband also had the right to expect this. The law of Moses protected even someone who would normally have lesser status. The slave wife has rights under the old covenant. I think it's time we stand up for what the Bible says and see that God's mercy and his love and his care for every person is there. We're not worse off if we follow the scripture. But we need to understand it. Dr. Fee says this, This clause is the point of the whole sentence. It modifies the opening prohibition by way of the immediately preceding purpose clause. This is why they must stop defrauding one another in this manner. Precisely so, says Fee, that it will not put one's spouse at the ready disposal of the tempter. There's the crux. Thinking that the intimate relations God ordained in Genesis 2 are a lesser thing or a bad thing or less than spiritual within a marriage. Some are demurring from that. Nope. And putting the spouse at the disposal of the tempter. So says he. Continuing. And that is also why any mutual abstinence for prayer must be for a set time so that they may be together again and the defrauded one not be so tempted. That's why it says stop defrauding or depriving. I have a statement that I wrote in my notes here. We know from the previous material in chapter 6 that the pornea is already a problem and Paul sees their false understanding shown by their slogan as an open door for Satan. B continues. The net result of all this is A, that Paul seems almost certainly to be forbidding something that's already going on. And B, that he altogether eliminates abstention as a normal practice. According to it, only... Hypothetically and under certain conditions on the basis of his Jewish background. So, Satan will not tempt you. God's plan is godly marriage, according to the pattern in Genesis, or those with the gift of celibacy, which is not greater or lesser. Paul will address that. Go to verses 6 and 7. 1 Corinthians 7, 6, and 7. Notice this word concession. But I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish all people could be like myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this way and another in that way. Okay, we're really getting down to the dealing with the falsehoods that arose really early in church history, 300 A.D. Even before that, 400 A.D., the Roman Catholic perversions of this that we see to this very day that do not make people more holy. Taking oaths of uh, chastity or whatever they call it, having the celibate priesthood didn't make anybody truly celibate having this hierarchy that the higher way is to be a monk or a nun or go off in a convent or uh, deny reality. This is a perversion that arose in church history based on misunderstanding a single text added to a few others that are misused. The spiritual ones are like the angels. That's not what it says here. The concession was simply... The abstinence for a period of prayer, not that you got married at all. And he says, I wish all people could be like myself, but each has his own gift. The gift here that Paul has is being single and celibate. And frankly, the pornea, the immorality is drawing aside singles and married people. And our society is hardly less perverse than the one they had then. And man's ways do not deliver anybody from anything. What God has provided is grace, power, forgiveness, cleansing, uh, redemption, and sanctification and wisdom that would protect everyone, not just certain elite church prelates. Marriage is not less spiritual. That we read already. Early church fathers called marriage less spiritual. And in fact, they invented doctrines. The perpetual virginity of Mary. Jesus didn't have any brothers. That's an invented doctrine. That's not in the Bible. And it's grounded in a false understanding of God's purpose. Not even taking into account Genesis two eighteen and 24, Paul cites it. God says this. It's not good for man to be alone. But each has his own gift, as Paul points out. Many have looked at marriage as a concession, not in the context of Paul saying, and that everybody should be celibate, and so forth. Let me cite Fee again. Here is a passage that has suffered much in the church, partly because of the traditional interpretation has often caused people to approach the text with an agenda in hand different from Paul's own. Interest has been deflected away from his concern, which is this, no celibacy within marriage. To questions about marriage itself, especially whether marriage might be less spiritual, a less spiritual calling than celibacy. Thus, the truly spiritual are celibate. For the rest, there is the concession to marriage, citing fee, which exists basically to curb illicit desire. But Paul would have none of this. For him, both marriage and celibacy are gifts. And despite his own preference for his gift, he certainly does not rise it to a higher spirituality. Paul is not saying his gift, single and celibate, is not higher than the married brothers and sisters. It's a different gift. The word gift, by the way, charisma. Charisma. If we want any more uh, evidence for this reading... All we need to do is look forward to chapter 12 and elsewhere where the charismata, the gifts, are laid out. Paul's concern is that whatever gifts people may have, they might use in their own minds to make themselves superior to the other Christians, saying, my gift is better than your gift. I'm greater than you. I don't need you. That comes up in chapter 12. Paul follows that by the love chapter, chapter 13. The point is, if God gives a charisma, gift, and it's different than what somebody else has, it's all good. Because it's a provision of God. Paul's gift is good. The married couple's gift is good. All is from God, if it's a gift from him, a charisma. Dr. Thistleton on historical positions, I want to cite this because it's pertinent to what we all have heard as we grow up in the religious world we live in. Dr. Thistleton, he has a, a heading called "Inferences from Patristic Post-History of Chapter Seven for Celibacy." Here's what he says: There's a general agreement that 1 Corinthians uh, 5 through 7, Paul envisions either physical union within marriage or celibacy. However, the complementary question uh, two that, write, that raised about marriage is whether Paul with some in Corinth views celibacy as a higher calling or simply that to which some are called while others are called to marriage. Did he Mentions a, a theologian by the name of Giblin. Giblin places the issue firmly within the framework, Paul's insistence that all Christians are one. Every charisma is equally necessary for the church. Paul that's 12, 12 to thirty-one. Paul implies no second rate Christianity in the age of marriage. But there also exists a variety of charismatic functions of which celibacy may constitute one. So you have gifts that differ, valid gifts, honored by God, and we are not to judge who's greater or who's lesser, but we're to thank God for what he's given. And we also need to honor God for protecting women in the, in the church the way he did and not cave in to the pagans who are telling us that evangelical Christianity is abusive because of these categories. That is a lie. No one is harmed by believing what the Bible says. No one is harmed by living what the Bible says. And no one is harmed by staying within God's boundaries. What harms people is the pagan world with this degenerate uh, view of everything, from marriage to singleness and everything that's going on. It's utterly against the way God laid it out. No one is ever going to be lacking by listening to God and having grace to live accordingly and following his ways. And I think there's no accident that these teachings about what is and is not valid in First Corinthians 7 through 12 are followed by the love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Because God is love, and we are to love God for our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. The applications today will come from Colossians. I taught through Colossians a few years ago. Those sermons are all on the gdf.church website if you're interested in any of these passages and here's the bigger categories. Number one, we must not allow human traditions to set aside God's revealed purposes. Number two, true spirituality is found through trusting Christ, not ascetic practices. Let me define that. What's ascetic? Trying to achieve spirituality through self-denial or various processes, severe treatment of the body, whatever it may be, that doesn't create spirituality. We should be able to see this. Some people think some uh, Tibetan monk sitting in a mountaintop meditating is somehow spiritual. Paul sees ordinary Christians be they single and celibate or married and having normal active relations with one another as being charisma spiritual so why is church history filled with oaths of celibacy oaths of poverty monks nuns false priesthood that's not grounded in the high priesthood of Christ, the priesthood of every believer, myths, false teachings. This is a perversion. And it doesn't actually keep anyone from immorality. It changes nothing in the heart of humans, but only makes worse temptation. Now let's go to Colossians eight. This is all a, right there in the scripture and it'll help us I pray that no one comes away from the word of God thinking it's hopeless that God has nothing for me that I, if you're a Christian if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior you're trusting him alone I don't want anyone to go away thinking God gave up on me, there's no hope There's no place for me. This is the opposite of what God is saying. Each one has his or her charisma from God, and it is good if we do things God's way. Colossians 2, 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition According to the elemental spirits of the word, world, not according to Christ. Now, the w- translation there, now, this is in the series of sermons I did on Colossians where I explained in detail that Greek word stoichia, uh, it could be just the ABCs, but in this context, is the spirits, the orderly system of spirits unseen, fallen. In the world. And that's where these traditions came from. From the stoichia. From the evil spirits. Or from human tradition. Pagan culture is dominated. By a wicked philosophy. From spirits of darkness. The spirits of darkness. Are very open minded. About what kind of bondage you get into. You can go. Become. Become overflowing with every kind of evil. Well, that's okay. That's a decent bondage. You can have that one. Or you can take an oath and go sit on a mountaintop and meditate. You're still in bondage. Freedom is found in Christ who forgives sins, who gives gifts, and who keeps us. Not in the traditions of the world. See to it, Blapo here in imperative Blepite is uh, see to it. We have to be on our guard. We have to look at what's going on. We need to be discerning. We need to be understanding. We cannot allow the pagan culture to dictate what can be taught in the church. We cannot allow pagan religion to say it's all valid. Do whatever you see fit. All paths lead to God. By the way, all paths do lead to God, either in damnation or salvation. But you don't want to take the path to God that leads to damnation. The path that leads to salvation is found only in Christ. The word to take captive, what we're warned against, means, according to uh, Arndt, Dinker, Bauer, Gindrich, I just got that one, $149, so I got to use it. It's a good Greek dictionary. Um, to take captive is to, quote, gain control by carrying off as booty. When the wicked invading armies go in and win, they take the booty, they take the goods, and carry them off as plunder. And they destroy everything. That's what the stoichia and the human philosophy would like to do. Tradition, if uh, the tradition can be good or bad depending on the source. When the source is Christ and his apostles... It's good. For example, I'll just cite this, so don't turn to it two Thessalonians two fifteen. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or our letter. Traditions grounded in the teaching of Christ and his apostles are good. Now traditions are things that keep order and predictability. In life, but we need traditions grounded in Christ and his apostles in the Word of God, not the traditions of men. Religions are always being invented, cults arise, false teachings arise, and the traditions are designed to take you, to carry away as booty and exploit you. For example, when I was reading uh, so much material the last three weeks preparing for this, in Roman society, in Paul's day, many thought the wife is for procreation because I'd like to have an heir, but the temple prostitutes are for everything else. What an abusive system. What a way of abusing women. That was common. God forbid that a Christian would look at it that way. And so the Lord is protecting us from being taken captive, carried off as booty for Satan or false religious systems that are inspired by Satan. According to, as mentioned here, kata in the Greek, she used three times. According to human tradition, according to the stoichia, the hostile powers, not according to Christ, dear ones, We want to be living what is according to Christ. Not this other stuff. No one's excluded who will come to Christ. I have a statement to make. We'll go to the next slide. What has been delivered to the church through Christ and his apostles is binding revelation from God. What comes from the pagan... Religious culture, man-made traditions, and wicked spiritual sources, the occult, is bondage and captivity, not freedom. Let's stand firm in the freedom we have in Christ. Let's just say no to the pagan culture, which looks at how we live as being bondage. But it's not. It's freedom. Isn't it amazing when you use language to pervert reality and call freedom bondage and bondage freedom? What are those who call good evil and evil good? Let's go to Colossians 2, 20 through 22. Colossians 2, 20 through 22. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits, that's the stoichia of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. So, a lot of people are fooled by this. The stoichia, the hostile powers, promote in some cases, asceticism. Don't eat certain kinds of foods. Don't get married. Take an oath. Give away all your money. Uh, Join this group and live an austere life, and then God will be happy with you. Here's the thing. Satan is very open-minded. You could go a lot of different ways as long as you end up in hell. And so here we have austere religions Eastern religion seems pious, seems spiritual, but it's bondage. And this material gets repackaged and sold to Christians. We've written about that. Pagan culture has both. You want to be profligate, do whatever you want, we got a plan for you. You want to be pious in self-denial we got a plan for you. You want to serve Christ and follow him alone? You're our enemy. That's what the world thinks. You're our enemy. That you can't do. But you can do anything else. And we see it played out in front of us every day. Colossians 2, 23. These, this appearance, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It does not work. Humans are fallen. We're born into this world alienated from God. We're born in this world not knowing God and... The tendency, as Eric was pointing out in Sunday school, is to just go our own way. If you say to children, whatever your inclinations are is fine with us, we'll just help you go your own way, whatever it might be. Do you see how perverse that is even right now? It is so wicked. What's going on? That will not lead anywhere but to death. Continued death and a worse situation. The fall is real. And so those who would try to have a better, spiritual, wonderful, nice, earthy, all-things-are-one type religion by various uh, practices, self-denial, will only find themselves even more deceived and more fallen, as if you could be more fallen. Dr. Powell, another commentary, says this, this reference to the failure of their practices recalls Paul's critique of the false teachers as, quote, Conceded without reason by his carnal mind, verse 18. Paul's rhetoric here points to his sustained attempt in this section to unmask the claims of the false teachers as their seemingly spiritual practices simply reflect their denial of the sufficiency of Christ. And yes. Yes, yes. The problem is denying the sufficiency of Christ. Either redefine Christ to be an Easter religion Christ, or the Christ consciousness, or Christians denying the sufficiency of Christ. Christ isn't going to take care of me. I need to add pagan philosophy or pagan practices to it. And this is just exactly what happens we wrote about the Enneagram. Obviously, utterly pagan, but it's coming into places and churches here and there and everywhere, denying the sufficiency of Christ. One last slide. I'm going to share the gospel with you. Colossians 2, 6-7. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted And built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This that I'm preaching is the truth for those who know Christ as Lord and Savior. We don't know Christ as Lord and Savior just because we're American, just because maybe we went to church when we were kids, or just because we're humans on the face of the earth. Because we come into this world lost, and that's the state we're in, until we come to Christ. Jesus Christ is not simply a founder of a world religion. He's God the Son. According to John 1, 1 through 18, the very creator. Jesus said in John 8, before Abraham was, I am. The readers of John know who the great I am is from Exodus. I am that I am, eternal, non-contingent existence, omniscient, omnipotent, and also loving, the creator God. This one, born of a virgin, who lived a sinless life, who came into our world, we believe in the preexistence of Christ from all eternity, who did many mighty deeds proving who he is no one else did such deeds nor will they he who raised Lazarus from the dead on the fourth day who turned the water into wine who multiplied the bread who did many mighty deeds proving who he is died for sins once for all he shed his blood to appease God's wrath against sin He predicted his own resurrection from the dead and was so raised on the third day. He predicted his own ascension, and he did ascend into heaven after appearing to many witnesses. And according to Scripture, Psalm 110, verse 1, and also cited in the New Testament, in Luke and in Acts, he sits at the right hand of God on high, and he will come again to receive those who believe in him to himself, will be forever in joy, and perfect relationship, and to bring judgment upon his enemies. So the gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What did Paul? What did Jesus say to Paul, and also to the other disciples before Paul? Paul was one late come lately, according to First Corinthians fifteen, but still apostle. Repentance. For forgiveness of sins should be preached to all peoples, beginning from Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Today I'm preaching to you the same gospel that was preached by the early preachers. It hasn't changed. God hasn't changed. Christ hasn't changed. Today, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Turn from the pagan ways. You won't be left with nothing. Turning to Christ means you gain relationship with him, forgiveness of sins, promise of eternal life. And he is one who puts us in part of his family, part of the family of God. We care for one another. Today, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And may I say each of us, whether single or married, may God give us grace to live out what's promised to us in these passages. That we have a charisma from God. We're not cursed. We're blessed. We're not lesser. We're all one in Christ. That's what's provided. And it's far better than the traditions of man. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness and goodness and Lord thank you for allowing us to understand what you said and lay aside the misunderstandings that have harmed so many and I pray that today there will be those who hear this and hear the gospel and turn to you and find forgiveness of sins thank you for your goodness and kindness Lord and we do pray for one another that you keep us and help us And may we continue to care for each other as we live in these perilous times. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.